We had to get police involved. We actually had a story where we actually used one of our units as a stakeout unit to arrest people that were causing, uh, you know, doing bad things in another apartment building. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories, the show for passive investors that is all about real estate investing. Today on the show, we have Jason and Pili Arusi. Jason and Pili are real estate entrepreneurs, speakers, mentors, and the hosts of the REI Foundation podcast. They have been managing their business from New Jersey, where they live with their two kids. Together, they manage Arusi Holdings, a home solutions company that finds the best remedy for distressed properties. They renovate wholesale and create passive income through buy and hold strategy. And they also operate Airbnb's rentals and control over 100 units in the Midwest. Hey, Jason and Peely, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We have one update to that. We actually just had our third child. So we are we are blessed. And uh, so so things are happening quickly. So it goes that we have to get things updated. <laughs> well, like, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Boy or a girl? Boy. A boy. Nice. So you have two boys and one girl now. Yes. And nice. we have lost control. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, the story that we're going to talk about today was basically on how you guys started uh, investing in multifamily properties. Correct. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the first large multifamily property we took down in the Midwest. Uh, just a story to find it, get it, uh, negotiate it, and close it out. And we can fast forward to what we've done uh, since about 15 months out from the property. All right, that's great. Um, so we're talking about your first investment. Um, can you give me a little bit of a background? What year was it and what you have been doing until that point? Uh, sure. So ideally, up until then, uh, I come from five generation construction background. So we work in heavy construction. Uh, we, I have a couple of different businesses, restaurant, a brewery, and some other facets that we've delved into. We moved out to New Jersey after living in New York City, where we first met years ago, uh, about six years ago now. Yeah. Started, yeah, of course, uh, taking construction to the next level by Peely got a real estate license. She started doing that side and we started finding properties to flip here locally. And we started buying small multifamilies out of state, uh, buying duplexes, triplexes out in the Midwest and in, in Indiana. Saw how nice it was to get checks in the mail once we had mm-hmm. them stabilized without really having to do Those too much. checks are amazing. Which are amazing. <laughs> That man, if we can do this with two or three units, what it would happen if we did it with 100 units? And that really put the light bulb on to say, wow, this is just a huge thing that we need to look further into. Jumped head in and just said, okay, where can we find out more about this? Basically, bigger pockets, other sites, learned as much as we can just about the topic of buying large multifamily properties and just started really 
looking out for other people doing it and just no new thoughts started copying what they're doing. So we first, we were comfortable with investing out of state. We knew that the metrics here in New Jersey, if we wanted to buy a hundred unit property, uh, just basically price per unit versus even rents or taxes and, uh, you know, being a tenant friendly state, it wasn't as viable of an option as going maybe to the Midwest or Southeast. So we started identifying markets that were typically situated in areas that had, uh, we'll say population growth and moderate population growth, two, 3% job growth job diversity, uh, had a number of housing supply, uh, and past that had boots in the ground or someone we knew in the area. And those were the high-level markers. Um, identified a few markets um, down in North Carolina, uh, went all in there and really beat the ground, building out a team, and we just couldn't get traction there. So we went to our secondary market after six to eight months, and that was out in Kentucky. Started diving in there, started really making relationships with brokers, with property managers, insurance people, bankers, everybody and anybody we could speak to, including a number of investors. And that really translated to us, started to find deals and look at deals and understand the market and understand more of the sub-market to where we wanted to be. And that led us to meet a property manager who had 6,000 units under management that really focuses on the BC arena. Uh, and for that, that was the neck of woods we want to stay in. They have in-house construction, they have real-time data, and it was a lot of things that allowed us to really put our focus on the right properties in the right place and have all the team members in place. While we were doing that, we started now talking to investors. And you want to take about investors? Oh, well, like Jason said, we uh, we started building out our team, and the really the key the key factor I think, it, and this goes into any aspect of real estate, is networking. Network, network, and then network some more. Um, that's how we find our deals. That's how we find our investors, and that's how your passive investors. If any passive investor listening out there, that's how you're going to find your deals. You're going to go to the REI meetings and look for people who need money. And trust me, we all need money. So look for the best opportunities that you can find. So that's what we did. Um, Jason and I also flip and wholesale, like uh, like he said before. So we are part of other groups. So we opened our, our multifamily opportunities to those groups. We got on the phone, called people, vox people, text people. Talk to your friends and family. You should always be talking to people about what you're doing on a constant, every day, every hour basis on the phone, on Facebook, everywhere you can think of. Of course, you know, follow guidelines. Don't put out deals that you're not supposed to put out. Um, but really, you should be telling people, you know, I, this is what I do for a living. Would you like to come on board? Yeah. Present the opportunity that way. Honestly, it's... People say that you find a good deal, the money will come. And that's partly true. You have to start building your network so people can understand what you're into. And then the money is pretty easy to go. Um, but with that said, since we didn't have a deal or track record in this larger space, we put together a mock deal and started talking to our friends and our family and our network and explain to them that, that basically all the groundwork we were doing to get into the space of buying large multifamilies, what that would look like from an operational side and also a return side. And I find that that hurdle of least people understanding what you're doing is just that first initial hurdle. And then the second hurdle is the deal. And it can be very overwhelming for an investor, a passive investor to get 
I guess, blindsided by someone who has a deal and also needs money, but in the past investor didn't understand they were even in this space. And it's almost too much for them to take on. So I, I highly suggest you need to make people understand what you're doing in the space before you actually go out there and present deals to them, because it's a lot for someone just to really take on, especially when apartment investing is not something that's offered as a retail investment by Charles Schwab, or most people have done in their lifetime. It's usually a new opportunity. So that said, we were building out our network and going out there and then we were offering, make, making offers. It was a property. Um, there was 94 units brought to us by our property management company uh, in our core market, in our core sub-market. And they were asking in the uh, mid $3 million mark. And we just went back and said, listen, put together our numbers where we feel that this works at was uh, 2.2 million, went back and they countered right at their asking price. So we're over a million dollars off. Uh, went back to them and just said, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Just nowhere else we could go. We're just too far apart. Transition forward six, seven months. Uh, time gone by. We had offered other properties, been best and final, done other things, and not had anything transact. We're looking at what we had offered on, and this is the key thing: always pay attention to the properties you've offered on because they can always come for a full circle. And we went back right. to this nine unit and said, "Well, let's go back in there." And we actually only raised our price fifty thousand dollars, so we were two point two million uh, fifty, and they cut their price all the way down to two point six million. So major Bingo. price cut. Now at this wow. point, it was uh, owners who had taken over the property for their father, who had a guy who was in his 90s, and the, the kids were all not really kids, 50 and 60 years old. None of them wanted to be in this arena. Uh, I think the out of the four or three, um, only one was actually in state, and it was more of a, a burden to them than of something that they were looking and they were making this a generating profit from it. So for that, that started the basically the ball rolling. And two or three months later, we went back and forth a number of times and we ended up getting it right at 2.3 million. So over a million dollars off their original asking. So what I would say is that you don't want to go out there and quote unquote lowball offers. But what we do today is that when we do have brokers on board, if we're not within range, a reasonable range of the asking price, and we'll go back and of course, we're going to have proof why we're not close. We're going to go back mm -hmm. and say to the broker, uh, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Broker, we are X amount dollars off, whatever that is. Um, this is why we feel that we need to offer at this price. We are happy to present it if you'd like to present it to your clients or if you think it's better not to present it uh, for that point. You give us your, your best advice just so we're not one putting them in a bad position. And two, we make them feel like more that it's a it's a win-win relationship. So that's worked well for us, especially when we're not going back at their asking offer. Yeah, and that way you give the you give the broker some a little bit of control over the deal. Cause if it's we like it, like Jason said, we don't give out low ball offers. We give out offers that make sense. Mm -hmm. We put out the number that makes sense. We're not going to go higher or lower than that. And the broker knows that and you want brokers to respect and you want them to know that you respect them. Yeah, and so for that point, we took on the property. Uh, with the property, of course, it had a lot of moving parts. Uh, we were severely under market on rents, which is what everybody always focused on. But we, I, that's my least favorite thing to focus on because that's the thing that, that everybody just thinks is the key. But the key is actually controlling your expenses and seeing where the operational efficiencies are. So for us, we noticed that the application fees were very poor. 
collections were very poor. And one of the keys to collection was something simple. They had an on-site leasing person who was downstairs in the office who couldn't collect rents. And this is not something that you would do Venmo and pay, you know, pay online. This was people dropping off their checks or dropping off their money orders every first of the month. And if they wanted to, they couldn't walk downstairs and pay the lady in the office. They would have had to drive to the owner's place four miles away or put it in, this, in the mail and then be responsible for the post office. So they were having a horrible time in collections and it was a very simple fix. We put our leasing manager in, put him downstairs and let him collect checks. Simple as that. So just as simple as that, it can be something that can change your business model just by making it easier on the tenants. Past that, uh, there's 600 units within range of this complex. Every other one allowed pets and everyone charged a non-refundable pet fee and a monthly pet fee. Ours, of course, did not, but when we audited all the units, we had eight pets. So we didn't allow pets, mm-hmm. but we had eight pets, and we weren't charging for them when everybody else was allowing them and also making that bottom line income. We were an owner's paid property for utilities, which not always the best solution unless you can find viability to it. Uh, this was not an area that you can bill back. It doesn't work, so the tenants would pay rents and just not pay the water bill. So you, have, you would have to think, do I want to, I guess basically evict tenants over the water bill. So what we do here is we found ways to make this more efficient. Took out two boilers and two of the smaller buildings, replaced them to high efficiency boilers, changed out some windows and replaced all the toilets, aerators, faucets for uh, low e-flush and for aerators. And that cut our water bill down year to date. We are down, I think it's 28% at this point. So it's a major tick because that all adds up to our bottom line. And past that, we just got things under control from regards from an operational operational side. So we've been into the property now about 15 months. We've had to do, I think we've turned uh, about close to 40 of the units now. And wow. that goes to our rent rate strategy. We do a pretty simple stoplight. It's a, it's a green, uh, yellow, and red. Uh, red is, they're just, uh, I guess we'll say, non-performers, repeat non-performers, always causing issues that we will either, they were on month to month, we would take them right to market, um, or we would do something to the point that they need to be evicted. We'll do it. Then we'll rehab the the unit, take it to market. Yellow will be someone who is a just reasonably under market for where the rent is. So we'll take them up a moderate rent bump. Green have been traditionally great tenants and we'll take them up a slightly um, lower rent bump. We put on agency debt onto this property. So we want to make sure because that we syndicated this property, bringing in uh, money from investors that we kept this stabilized to the fact that we could offer returns, which we did from first quarter and half throughout, but also begin to take track and grasp onto the efficiency of the property warranted. So we are now about 15 months out. We actually just refied out of our loan into a new one. And um, great news, we just have given back over 70% of the capital to investors. So wow. it's a really nice project. We're really excited about good. it. Yep. And we have uh, two more under contract right now. Very similar, very similar vintage, very similar area, some market same plan. Well, the great thing about giving our investors their money back is that even though we, we've given their money back, they're still in the deal. That's yeah. how we, we put the deal together. So our investors love us. Mm-hmm. Yep. Keep great. them in perpetuity. We wanted them to know that the, this is not something where it's them, them or us. It's a partnership. Yes. And that's what these deals are. We all benefit from being able to pool resources to buy large multifamilies from the uh, the efficiencies we can create. And so this is a win-win for everybody. And we're very excited about how this has gone and continuing to just 
dive down into into it. And it hasn't always been perfect. And anybody who tells you it is, it, it isn't. You know, we've had um, some buildings around the area that um, were causing trouble and had some bad tenants that were owned by the city. Um, we had to get police involved. We actually had a story where we actually used one of our units as a stakeout unit to arrest people that were causing, uh, you know, doing bad things in another apartment building. Oh, uh, I, I want to hear about that story. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, Sometimes, you know, you got to just get, get a little nuts and just, uh, and take control of things. So we knew that one of our buildings, we have five buildings within this complex was feeling unsafe because there was a building owned by the city. Um, there had, there was at one point a shootout. They were having a lot of drug activity, a lot of other things. And this is not like, I mean, these are factory workers, maybe the mailmen's that they're like, this isn't this area, but there was this place where ideally that we, we couldn't really get anything done because it was owned by the city. So management company kept trying, and it was all section eight, kept trying to call, uh, really the head of section eight, wasn't getting any there. I called down to the city borough, got, we just kept leaving messages that if, uh, that I need to call back because someone's going to die in my building if they don't call me back. And that gets you a lot of calls. So I kept, I kept getting that. And then the next person would say, well, I'm not the person. I'd call the next person the same message. The next person I'd say the same message. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Finally got to the right person named Lucretia who could help me with this. Understood, knew what the building was because it was a trouble area. And she actually put me in charge with the uh, lieutenant at the police station. And he actually left the same message. You know, uh, Sergeant, uh, you know, XYZ, please call me. I think someone's going to die on my property if something doesn't take action soon. And from that point, got him call back. And we had two units. We were in the middle of turning. We actually offered up those units to the police officers so they could go in there and actually watch the activity because it was looking right out in these buildings that were causing trouble and took about two and a half weeks, but they arrested a number of people. And uh, best story, I mean, you know, that sounds all crazy and all what it was, but at least the tenants in the area feel safer now. And that's what it, what it was. We got the utility companies to uh, install for like 25 hours a light, like a new spotlight out there, uh, put out uh, cameras and also an alarm on the door out there, put up a new fence because it's all about making communities better. So if you're just going to do this for the point of just, you know, trying to find money, well, that's not our way. We want to make this community better. And if the tenants aren't safe, it, it, what it, would that say about us as an owner if we're putting them in that position where they're stuck in a, in a situation? So. Still trying to buy that building, get that building from the city because that would help us even more. Mm -hmm. um, but they have yeah. some logistical hurdles that it's it's under a bond for two years, so we'll wait two years. Wow. Yeah. that that's a very interesting story. Yeah. Um, and so from from a passive investor's point of view, um, they're going. You know, they, you managed to raise capital for the first syndication, and you did it out of state, so they were kind of you know, a, a complex situation and you managed it pretty well. Um, how would, how, how would you think that a, um, a passive investor would, can, can actually vet a syndicator, especially if it's their first out of state investment or multifamily investment. And even though, you know, you were in real estate many years before and you just did different things and in different markets. Um, so how was, how was that transition for you? How, challenging or easy maybe that was the, you know was it for you to make that jump um for us to well I'll, those are both really good questions sound like two questions the first yeah. one was <laughs> how would a syndicator vet or how would a uh, passive investor vet a syndicator so to that question like as a passive investor you're not only investing in the syndicator or in the like in the deal you're investing in the person and this you have to know and know that person who's syndicating. So for instance, this was our first deal that we just talked about. We had 
been in other, we've been in other aspects of real estate. We fixed and flipped homes, um, but we'd never taken down something as large as this. And especially, like you said, it was, it was out of state and this was our first one. So why would people give us their money? Well, the thing is, and this goes to the syndicators and to your passive investors out there. You invest, again, you're investing in the person. So Jason goes to our friends and family and Jason has other aspects of his life that he has succeeded in. He's um, he's done multiple businesses. He's he has a track work record of success. You're, you're, you're making me more than more than more than what's going. On. <laughs> he's awesome, no, by no, the way. No, no. But it does go down the track record first because if you don't have experience, you, you have to do two things: prove your track record, yes, and surround yourself with good team. And as a passive investor also, I mean, the world of the internet is so easy. You can pretty much identify where they are in the area pretty quickly and find so much data, whether it's on the Census Bureau or City Data or Zillow, and just find a lot of things about the market. So first it's a person um, that goes to really diving in, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you can do that is definitely what you want, up. you know. So mm-hmm. look the person up, see see what the story is, talk to people, get references, get referrals, mm-hmm. just as if you were possibly hiring someone for a business or for a job or other. And then past that, it would be uh, really just diving into what they're doing. And, and just, I would want to know, you know, worst case scenario, how are they reserving? And if the plan doesn't work perfectly, what is the plan? Step two, step three, step four, if they can't, because everybody is going to give you a plan. that's going to be magical. We're going to buy this thing. And, you know, in two years, we're going to do all these magic things. And then all of a sudden it's all going to be unicorns, right? Yeah, <laughs> unicorns unicorns yeah. and rainbows. Exactly. <laughs> and on that point, but, but okay, we hope so. And that, that, that's great. But if, things do not align with your vision. How are you set up? You know, if we have a tick up in interest rates or you need to hold it longer or we need more uh, repairs done, what does the project look like then? And mm-hmm. that, that's a question that I'd want to know if I was investing in somebody else and how if they thought through that process. Why don't we simplify it for her listeners? What, are, what do you think are the, like, the top three things that her listeners should look for in a syndicator? Track is the first deal track record in other businesses, uh, plan of action, especially um, steps two and three, and the team. Because if you're not gonna be local, I, you, you're just you're not gonna be there. So it really the, the property management company is the most important person because they're the one implementing the plan, and they're also the ones who are your your basically your your face. So that would be it. I yeah, I totally agree. I think that a lot of um Passive investors tend to focus on the syndicators, which is important, but not a lot of them are actually looking into the property management company and they assume, okay, if the syndicator is working with them, they've vetted the company. No, go online and look, you know, where, you know, what's their bread and butter if if they do, um, you know, value add deals or are they better at core um, real estate if, if they're actually in the market or is it a new market for them as well? So that that's, I think that's a great point to actually look and focus also um, on the property management company. And and I, I got to say, um, I love the fact that you're doing this as a couple. Um, <laughs> I, I wish my fiance, w- w- you know, is interested in, in real estate. He's an entrepreneur, but real estate is not uh, really his thing. Um, so how how does it work? Uh, um, if I can guess, I would say that, Jason, you're more in the operations, maybe the deal side, and Pilly, you're in the investors relations and maybe capital raise, but I might be <laughs> off there, so... Well, honestly, I actually, 
I'm actually usually more in like the fix and flip and our wholesale avenue. And then I come onto the multifamily avenue and I do help, like you said, when, whenever, investor relations, yeah. <laughs> whenever yeah, we have investor relations, yeah. whenever Jason's like, we have this deal, let's, let's, uh, let's put out the opportunity. I'm like, I'm on it. Let's get on MailChimp. Let's get on everything yeah. and contact all of our friends and family who want to get on. Um, and to speak to your question about how we work together. I mean, the great thing is Jason and I have always worked together. We met bartending. So I don't think we know how not to yeah. work together. I guess oh, it's that's a great. Riding of roles. Yeah. We met <laughs> years ago. So no, yeah. Communication. Yeah. And that's key with like any, any relationship, whether it's your spouse, your partner, your team, communication communicate 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 anytime you have a difficulty it's usually because of miscommunication right or lack thereof or lack thereof exactly <laughs> well i love that you're doing this as a couple i think it's very memorable when you see both of your names together because it's it's it you stand out because most people are it's usually a, w one name um and i don't i also unfortunately don't see a lot of women in the commercial real estate business so that's that's always nice to to meet another, you know, fellow professional uh, female in, in real estate. And um, so I, I guess one of my last questions is um, if you could look back, maybe you were bartending back then when you were 22 years old, what would you tell yourself knowing everything that you know today and, you know, working together all those years? <laughs> right before. I would say that. Uh, what would you say to yourself? I have to think about this one. <laughs> it's simple. I, the things that you think are big deals are really not. And so there's just not not a lot of things that on a, on a day in day out that are very big deals as we make them, especially at that age compared to just the, the overall horizon of your life. So I wouldn't treat things as if they're the mile marker. Like if I don't, and you can treat this from like a real estate thing. If I don't do a deal this year, my career is over or something where it's it, this real estate's like a long play. And ideally, if you hold on to properties for the long run, I don't say buy buy wrong, but if you have a plan in place, ultimately over time you can work into a good a good a good property. Not to say buy wrong, but ideally, you know, you have to look at it is that real estate is is more about creating for us generational wealth, and that's what we're looking to do with these properties. And uh, and so for that, we're looking to buy stuff for the long run, and not focused so much on just little things that are little speed bumps. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it would be travel more and take action that's what i would tell my 22 self yours, take more yours, yours is a lot easier and travel more <laughs> yours yeah. is more like yeah you know, big picture no. <laughs> all right well well great advice thank you for sharing um so where can people where can our listeners find you well, there's a couple of ways. We do have a podcast, the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast with Jason and Peely. Um, so you can definitely find us there or you can find us uh, by email, uh, simply by email. You can either email Jason at jason at yerusiholdings.com or Peely at yerusiholdings.com. Yep. And our website's the same thing, yerusiholdings.com, Y-A-R-U-S-I. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for being there today on the show and sharing the story with me and my listeners. I wish you all the best and I'll catch you later. Bye now. Bye. That was our podcast for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I know that there are tens, if not hundreds of real estate related podcasts, and I'm grateful that you chose to listen to this one. You can find the episode's show notes on iTunes and on my website, www.elliepearlman.com. Please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes 
And if you like it, please share it on your social media feed and show your friends what you're listening to these days. On the next episode, we'll hear a story about how an investor raised $1 million in three days after the lender backed out on a deal three days before closing. It's a great story with a lot of energy and resourcefulness. The end is inspiring, so don't miss it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.